Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 32. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. Today we come to the end of our study of the gospel appearance narratives concerning the resurrection of Jesus. We've looked at a number of the post-mortem appearances of the risen Lord, and we ended last time with a discussion of Jesus' appearance to the disciples on the Sea of Tiberias in the miraculous catch of fish, whereby Jesus recalled the disciples to that original call to become fishers of men. Now, I suggested last time that this appearance, properly understood, is um, an appearance to the disciples not having gone back to their old way of life, but rather simply passing time in Galilee while waiting for the appointed rendezvous with Jesus on the mountaintop described in Matthew chapter 28. And in the second half of this chapter, John 21, from verses 15 to 19, we have the personal interaction of Jesus with Peter described. Let's read that passage together. John chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God. And after this he said to him, follow me. Now sometimes people will interpret this passage as a rehabilitation of Peter after his having denied Christ three times. And while I think it is correct that Jesus' threefold question, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? does reflect the threefold denial of Peter. I do not think that this is a rehabilitation scene. Why? Well, we've already seen that Jesus has appeared to Peter already in Jerusalem. Remember in Luke's narrative of the Emmaus appearance, when the Emmaus disciples get back to Jerusalem, the disciples are gathered together and they meet them by saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And so Peter and Jesus, I think, have already come to terms by this point. Indeed, perhaps the reason that we don't have any narrative of the resurrection appearance of, Peter, uh, of Jesus to Peter is because it was so personal and intimate 
as the Lord restored Peter to faith and um, a discipleship after Peter had denied him those three times. So now, when Jesus appears to them unexpectedly on the Sea of Tiberias, Peter is so eager to see Jesus that he throws himself into the water and swims to shore ahead of the boat to meet Jesus and can't even wait for the disciples to bring the boat to land. And in this interaction between Peter and Jesus here, you notice that this is not a rehabilitation of Peter. There's no confession of sin or contrition on Peter's part. There's no word of forgiveness or absolution from Jesus. Rather, this is a recommissioning scene. Peter is here commissioned to be the chief shepherd of the New Testament church. And we shouldn't read into this, as people sometimes do, deep theological significance in the fact that the word for love used by Peter and Jesus here is different. Um, this is simply a stylistic variation that is common in Greek literature. They thought it was monotonous if you would simply repeat the same word over again. So they will use stylistic variants. You notice that with the variation between uh, feeding my sheep and tending my lambs. It's synonymous. They're, it's just there for stylistic variation. And so what Jesus is doing here is um, recommissioning Peter to follow him, uh, just as he called Peter initially in Luke 5 with that great miraculous catch of fish to follow him and become a fisher of men. So here Peter is recommissioned as the chief shepherd of um, the flock. And so I do not think this is to be understood as a rehabilitation scene, but rather it's properly understood as a commissioning scene of Peter. Well, that completes the post-mortem appearances in the gospel tradition. And scholars will sometimes um, ask about the sequence of these appearances. Sometimes critical scholars will say that these appearance narratives are mutually contradictory, that no sort of coherent sequence of events can be put together. But it seems to me that as you read the appearances, it's relatively easy to list the chronological order into which these appearances fell. The very first appearance would be the appearance to the women near the empty tomb of Jesus as they discovered that the body is missing. That would then be followed by the uh, appearance uh, on the road to Emmaus as Disciples have left and Jesus appears to them in the way. Some time around that time would be the appearance to Peter as well. We're not sure whether it was before the appearance to the Emmaus disciples or afterwards, but roughly simultaneous with that appearance would be the appearance to Peter. Then that evening was the appearance to the twelve gathered together in the upper room in Jerusalem. The next appearance was one week later to the twelve, this time including Thomas, as they stayed in Jerusalem for the duration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread before going back to Galilee to meet with Jesus where he had appointed them. Next comes the appearance by the Sea of Tiberias. As the disciples are fishing, Jesus unexpectedly meets with them before the appointed rendezvous 
and we have the appearance story that we've just read together. And then finally, there will be the mountaintop appearance in Galilee that is foreshadowed by the angel in Mark's account and narrated by Matthew in Matthew 28. So, in fact, it's not difficult to order these appearance narratives chronologically, and they tend to follow the sequence of the pilgrimages to and from the feasts in Jerusalem. The disciples go to Jerusalem on pilgrimage uh, for the Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then they return home to Galilee, and then later they'll come back for the Feast of Pentecost, where there will be the final uh, appearances of Jesus uh, that are not narrated in the Gospels, but in the book of Acts. Uh, and there may have been other appearances as well that Paul talks about that are not narrated in the Gospels. Really, when you look at these appearance stories, the only remaining unresolved problem with them, I think, is the appearance to the women. Did the appearance to the women occur before the disciples' inspection of the empty tomb, or did it occur after the disciples' inspection of the empty tomb. In the Gospel of Matthew, it seems that as the women run from the empty tomb to tell the disciples, Jesus interrupts them in their journey and appears to them there. On the other hand, in John chapter 20, the appearance to Mary Magdalene takes place after Peter and the beloved disciple have come and inspected the tomb, and they leave and Mary remains at the tomb in tears and then has an appearance of Jesus. Now, as you think about these appearances, there's a certain logical order that if you didn't have the Gospels and you just wanted to order them in a sort of logical way in, in which these would occur. First, there would be the women's discovery of the empty tomb. Logically, that would come first. Then, secondly, the women would run to tell the disciples of what they have seen, and you would have then the disciples inspecting the empty tomb. They're skeptical that the women are correct in saying the tomb is now empty, but they're willing to go check it out and see for themselves. And then finally, you would have the post-mortem appearance to the women in which they see that indeed Jesus is risen from the dead, and that's why the tomb was discovered empty. Now this would be the sort of logical order in which you would expect the events to take place. And when you look at the Gospels, what you discover is that they actually do tend to fit this pattern. Now only John's narrative has all three elements. John narrates the discovery of the empty tomb, the disciples' inspection of the tomb, and then the appearance to women. By contrast, um, Mark has only the discovery of the empty tomb. Matthew has the discovery of the empty tomb and the appearance to the women, but not the disciples' inspection. And Luke has the women's discovery of the empty tomb and the disciples' inspection, but not the appearance to the women. Now, since Matthew has chosen not to relate item two, he leapfrogs from one to three. He has the tradition of the appearance to the women, and he appends it directly to the narrative 
of the empty tomb. So that it makes it look as if, as they fled from the tomb, Jesus appears to them and interrupts them before they reach the disciples. But if you put the whole picture together, in fact, what happens, I think, is that women run to tell the disciples, just as John says, the disciples then come to inspect the empty tomb, and the women naturally run back with them. And then finally, after the disciples have left, there is an appearance to the women. The Emmaus disciples leave after hearing of number two. The disciples have gone to inspect the tomb, but there has not yet been any resurrection appearances. And so the Emmaus disciples set off for home, thinking that the tomb has been found empty by women and verified by some of the disciples, but they're not aware of number three. That doesn't happen until Mary runs back again to the disciples and says, I have seen the Lord. So if we um, understand the Gospels as combining these three independent uh, traditions, one, two, and three, then I think we can put them into a coherent chronological order by understanding Matthew to leave out number two and just skip from one to three, and that makes it look as if the resurrection appearance to the women took place prior to their reaching the disciples, when in fact it took place afterwards. Well, that completes what I wanted to share about these uh, appearance narratives and the gospel narratives in general. Is there any question or discussion about any of these points? Okay, Steve, we have Cindy down here in the front with a question. Just to sort of recap, how many days did he have, what period of time, from the first appearance to the final mountaintop? And secondly, doesn't it say he appeared to 500 at one point and to others? Yes. And now, putting all that let in me address the last part of the question. There are appearances mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that we have no narrative right. of in the Gospels. The appearance to the 500 brethren. The appearance to James, remarkably. We have no narrative of the appearance to Peter and no narrative of the appearance to James. We don't know why, but they're not narrated in the Gospels. And it's unclear whether we have an a narration of the appearance to all the apostles that Paul also mentions, that could be the appearance in Acts 1 uh, at the ascension where Jesus appears to all of them and then departs from them. So these gospel appearance narratives are to be supplemented by the very early traditions that the apostle Paul knows about and hands on. Um, now the first part of the question was over how many days did this occur? That is uncertain. If, and this is an interesting point, Cindy. If you read Luke's gospel, it makes it sound as if all of the appearances took place on Easter itself, and that at the end of the day, Jesus leaves and ascends into heaven. Luke doesn't narrate any Galilean appearances. He just has Jesus appear Easter evening in the upper room, and that's it. But then you turn the page to the book of Acts, chapter 1, which Luke also writes, and he says, Jesus showed himself alive over a period of 40 days I was thinking through was many thinking, yeah. appearances and, and, uh, and proofs. So sometimes the gospel writers will abbreviate what they're saying, and it's uncertain as to exactly uh, what the time involved is. 
we know that the appearance to Thomas and John was one week later. He says it was a week, eight days later. And then they went back to Galilee. But we don't know how long they were in Galilee before the mountaintop appearance. So it's uncertain. John just says that the appearance by the Sea of Tiberias was the third appearance of Jesus to the 12 disciples. But we don't know exactly. So basically we've got Luke's narrative or summary in Acts where he says it was over a period of around 40 days. Pentecost was 50 days after Easter. And so all of the appearances took place, it seems, within that period of time, except for the appearance to the Apostle Paul. Because he said, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me after, in effect, the ascension. Thank you. Thanks. So the mountaintop appearance in the Matthew 28 is at a mountain in Galilee. Yes. But then Luke says that he ascended from Bethany, the vicinity of Bethany. Where, yes. where does that fit in? I'm well, I that. would say that we shouldn't understand Matthew's narrative to be an ascension narrative. It's an appearance narrative. And even though there is a sort of sense of finality to the Gospel of Matthew in that this is the close of the Gospel of Matthew and he leaves him with the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the Gospel, it's not an ascension narrative. It doesn't say that then he ascended into heaven and left them. So the ascension takes place in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives later, not in Galilee. I've always conflated those two in my mind. I've always yes, had the idea it, that The he, other day someone yeah. commented that the appearance on the mountaintop in Matthew was on the Mount of Olives. No, the Mount of Olives is just outside. It's across the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem. It's, yeah. you, you see Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. So this Galilean appearance is on some unknown mountain in Galilee. And when you think about Jesus' Galilean ministry, Remember, it was in Galilee that thousands of people flocked to hear Jesus uh, as he fed the 5,000 or the 4,000. So one would imagine that if Jesus had appointed a rendezvous with the disciples on a mountain in Galilee, that it would not just be the 12 that would come to meet with him there. Certainly the women would also come, and one might think there would be others who could come. So it's not at all outside the realm of probability that this is the appearance to the 500 brethren. And that that's why we don't have a narrative of the appearance. It's because this is it in Matthew. Cody. If somebody's already mentioned this, I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, I wanted to ask, what's your take on the fact that uh, why didn't like Mary and some of the disciples immediately recognize Jesus when they first saw him? Like I know it says, doesn't say somewhere like their eyes were kept from recognizing him or like what's your yes, take I on did, that? I did address that okay. a couple weeks ago. So let me refer you to, to the lesson there. But I will just say in a nutshell, for those who didn't hear it, that we shouldn't try to explain this in a natural way. For example, that her tears had blinded her vision or that by the Sea of Tiberias, the boat was so far from shore they couldn't tell who it was. On the contrary, John says they were not far from shore. He emphasizes how close they were to the shore. So I think the clue is what you mentioned in Luke with regard to the Emmaus disciples. It says their eyes were held from recognizing him. This was a supernatural blindness that was imposed by God and then lifted and removed in an instant at the moment of disclosure. And so we need to ask what theological motif is being represented here. And I'm not sure, 
But one suggestion that I think is plausible is that Jesus is saying to the disciples that they will no longer relate to him in the same way in which they were accustomed to relate to him during his earthly life. That Jesus is now risen and ascended to a new mode of existence, and their relationship with him now will not be the familiar one that they knew when he walked among them and, and was with them. And that's what's symbolized by this non-recognition motif. James. Uh, Bill, can, can, we, can I back up to the end of last week's lesson? Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, for clarification, because um, it sounded like you, you said that when, when Christ was resurrected from the dead, he was in his glorified body. And yes. Is that, well, this is what I'm trying to understand. I mean, um, there's nothing spectacular about his appearance, un unlike the transfiguration. I mean, we're not talking about the beatific vision here. No. I guess I'm... I guess when I think of his final state, his glorified state, I think more of a beatific vision, not just, not just him in a, uh, looks almost like a common man in mm -hmm. eating and walking and all this. I, okay, I think it is a real mistake, James, to think that the glorification of Jesus takes place with his ascension into heaven. In the biblical conception, he rises from the dead in his glorified resurrection body. This is not a return to the earthly life. Jesus' resurrection body was not mortal and prone to disease and ready to die again. Rather, this he, he rises to glory. This is a, a real resurrection and not just a revivification like Lazarus. And I think that the best indication of this is his ability to appear and disappear at will in various locales. You're right, we don't see the sort of dazzling light that you have in the transfiguration narrative. That, that's very true. But you do have a Jesus who is invested with supernatural abilities. He can suddenly appear in the mm -hmm. upper room without having to open the door or come through the walls. He just appears in the room. Similarly, with the Emmaus disciples, in the breaking of the bread, he just vanishes out of their sight and then reappears in Jerusalem without traversing the distance in between. So I would say that in the conception of the Gospels, this is a supernatural body and not just a plain old earthly body that uh, still remains to be glorified. Then I guess as a follow-on, though, why is he eating fish and all this, though, if he's... Why what? I mean, he's eating fish a couple of times in the... Yes. So it's a supernatural body. I don't... Um, that's what well, I have... Well, as I said, right. I think that these remarkable physical demonstrations of showing the wounds and eating the fish is meant to um, demonstrate to the disciples the corporeality and physicality of the resurrection body. They are not merely seeing a vision of the risen Lord, like Stephen saw. Remember when Stephen is stoned, he sees a vision of the Son of Man in heaven, but nobody else saw anything. It wasn't corporeal or physical. But Jesus wants to emphasize that this is a real resurrection in the Jewish sense of the word, corporeal and physical. And it's very interesting, James, when you read the rabbis, the early Jewish commentaries on Angelical, uh, angelic appearances, they would distinguish between an appearance of an angel, or a vision of an angel, I should say, and an actual physical appearance 
of an angel. And they would say the way you could tell the difference was that if the food consumed after the appearance was over, then it was a real bodily appearance. But if the food remained untouched despite what you saw, then you know it was merely a subjective vision. So this Lucan story fits right in with this typical Jewish mindset that the ability to eat and consume food was indicative of a real physical appearance and not just a theophany or a Christophany or some sort of visionary experience. Taiwan? Dr. Craig, the physical resurrection is such a big deal, and I don't understand why Peter and John in the later books didn't emphasize or even bring about their experience with the postpartum uh, resurrection. Well, I don't know how to answer that question except to say that these authors, in using the notion of resurrection, being risen from the dead, understood this in the typical Jewish way. It's only modern theologians who have asked if a man raised from the dead would have his body still in the grave. For a first century Jew, the idea that someone could be raised from the dead while his corpse still remained in the grave would have been a contradiction in terms. It was absurd. So as Professor N.T. Wright emphasizes in his book, uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God, over and over and over again, the word resurrection, whether used by Christians, by pagans who rejected it, or by Jews who looked forward to it, always meant a physical, corporeal resurrection, not some sort of an exaltation to heaven or a visionary experience. So I would say that in these other cases, Simply in using the word, they are talking about a physical resurrection. And for some reason with their readers, unlike Paul's readers in Corinth, they didn't feel the need to emphasize it. Ben? Uh, just a quick comment. As you know, I've spent a lot of time with Jehovah's Witnesses, and one of the main things they believe is that Jesus rose only in spirit form, and he did not use the physical body that he died in. And I just think this is... of Every single point that they believe, this is the number one easiest belief to refute, in mm. my opinion, whenever I've spoke, spent so much time with them, because he goes so out of his way to say, listen, I'm not a spirit, yes. and let me prove it to you. <laughs> and let me eat, drink, touch my hands, show you that it's the same body, and their explanations for this if you want, I mean, it's unbelievable some of the stuff they'll try to come up with, but they, they don't. I mean, most of them yeah. say, I, I really don't know. But it, I also think it's really important what you were talking about last week and we were just talking about here about one of their main um, evidences for this is that, hey, the, on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him. So that's their number one evidence they've given me that this was not the resurrect the body that he was crucified in because they didn't recognize it. Ah. But you went out of your way, and I think it's very clear in Scripture that this was something that was su supernaturally done to their eyes, that they were... It, they were uh, caused not to be able to recognize him, not because of the way he looked, but something that was actually done to them. So it's a that's a really important point if you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses about this. The Jehovah's Witness is burdened by his commitment to the reliability of Scripture to try to explain away these uh, problems, whereas the modern liberal theologian who doesn't believe in the 
historicity of the narratives, can just dismiss them as legends and myths. And he doesn't believe in them either. He doesn't believe in physical appearances, but he will simply uh, regard these as unhistorical, mythological, or legendary stories. And his skepticism is born out of a presupposition against miracles. You, you cannot have a nature miracle as astounding as the resurrection of a dead man. Any other comments or discussion? Cash? Okay, I won't be offended if you say this is not on the track that you're uh, going down here and you want to decline this till later. But um, my question is in John 20 when he appears to the women and he's talking to Mary Magdalene and he says, don't cling to me, Jesus told her, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. It seems out of place for me for uh, the one reason that he says, go tell them that I'm going to be, I'm going to go be ascended to the Father, knowing that he's going to appear to them a bunch of times over 40 days. That seems odd. And then this odd statement, don't cling to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father, doesn't seem to have any reason behind it to me. Okay. I, I was hoping well, you could explain. Well, now let me comment on the latter okay. part of your question first, because I think when you read this Johannine appearance story, in light of the story in Matthew, it sheds additional light on it. In Matthew 28, 9, it says, Behold, the, Jesus met them and said, Hail, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. So if this is the same appearance, I think that Mary has fallen at the feet of Jesus and they are clinging to his ankles and Jesus is saying, stop clinging to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. I haven't left you yet, in other words. Okay. Um, and I'm still going to be with you for a time. But as you say, I am ascending to my God and your God, but eventually. Uh, and so that would be the way I would understand the passage. I fully grant you that taken in isolation, it does appear very puzzling, but it seems to me that that's the best way to understand it. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks. Good. All right. Having surveyed the biblical data concerning the resurrection of Jesus, we now want to turn to a systematic summary of the resurrection, and we'll begin by looking at a historical survey of how theologians over the centuries, uh, indeed millennia, have understood the resurrection of Jesus. And I think it's sufficient to simply begin today by saying that the earliest church fathers understood the resurrection of Jesus to be a literal event. They understood it to be literally the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus to uh, immortality and glory in exactly the same way that Jews understood the resurrection, except that this had occurred in advance of the eschatological resurrection at the end of history in the person of Jesus. Indeed, the biggest debate among the early church fathers with respect to resurrection of the dead uh, wasn't so much about Jesus as it was about the notion of the resurrection of the flesh. Would the very flesh that we have be resurrected? And the church fathers tended to affirm this, that um, we would be resurrected in the flesh and that Jesus carried his fleshly body into heaven with his ascension and is there uh, at the right hand of God. Now, 
That raises all sorts of difficult questions about how Jesus can be physically and bodily in heaven in his resurrection fleshly body, but we don't need to deal with those now. Here we're simply surveying uh, theological thought on this, and it's very clear that for the uh, early church fathers, indeed really right up until the Enlightenment in the 17th century, that the overwhelming dominant view of the resurrection of Jesus was that this was a literal event that transpired to Jesus of Nazareth. All right, now during the Enlightenment in Europe, that is to say beginning around the uh, late 17th century and then on into the 18th century, skepticism concerning the resurrection of Jesus began to arise. And the first such alternative to the resurrection as a literal event was the so-called conspiracy theory. And we will look at that theory next time. Let's end with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for these wonderful resurrection narratives in the Gospels, as well as Paul's testimony in his epistle to the Corinthians to the reality of the resurrection. And we rejoice in this hope and look forward to the reception of our immortal and glorious and powerful bodies that we will someday enjoy. Thank you for this time together this morning. We pray that you would go with us now, strengthen and empower us for victorious living this week. In Christ's name, amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.